Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm with Jamie Ford, a New York Times best-selling author. He's going to appear at the Hamilton East Public Library in downtown Fisher Saturday, October 1st. So if you're listening or watching this podcast on or before that date, uh, he'll be there at 1 and 4 p.m., uh, a library very much recommends that you uh, get a registration in, in because there is limited uh, uh, room for, for each of those. And, and uh, it is free, but the, there is a high recommendation that uh, that you signed up in advance. So, Jamie Ford, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. It's an honor to have you. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you. Co- good to have you coming to Fishers. Uh, it's it's it's, uh, it's it's great to have you in our city as well. You know, you have uh, authored a number of books, and you have a new book coming out that we'll talk about a little later on. But I had the opportunity to read Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. And you know something? Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm getting it's it's a uh, fall, so my it's get sure. my allergies are getting to me. Um, I've been you know over my time working in radio and doing podcasts, I've interviewed a number of book authors off and on, uh, and I always read a book before I, I interview an author. And I've not enjoyed every book that I've had to read, but I must say it was a great joy to read this Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. You're, I think, really put you on the map as, as an author. Uh, what you did in that book, you clearly meshed together real places and, uh, and and real people to formulate that fictional story. I want to talk more about the story later, but tell me how your life experience informed you in, in putting that story together. Yeah, I'm half Chinese on my dad's side. Um, there's an interesting story as to why I have the last name Ford, but uh, suffice to say I'm half Chinese. And... When my dad passed away about 20 years ago, I felt somewhat cut off from my own heritage. And really, just to process my own grief, I began researching the time period of his childhood um, and my, my grandfather's childhood. And I wrote a short story that had this young Chinese-American boy um, kind of as a witness of all the things that were happening in Seattle um, during World War II. And my dad was that age. And in the book, the character of Henry, he's, he's wearing a button that reads, I am Chinese, because after Pearl Harbor, um, you know, there was confusion as to who was an ally and who was uh, a perceived enemy. And my dad wore one of those buttons. And he talked about walking to school and the white kids throwing rocks at him, calling him a Jap and things like that. But I'm a fairly sentimental guy, and I couldn't help but turn it into a bit of a, of a, of a love story. Um, all my books tend to have, uh, they, they tip the emotional Richter scale pretty hard. Um, cause I just, I shamelessly lean into it. I, I love love stories. Um, and I think stories of you know, often stories of the heart in conflict with itself for me is more interesting than, you know, stories about, uh, you know, gun battles and asteroid collisions. Um, 
But that's a long, a long answer to a very short question. No, it's a very, very good answer, I must say. And you do something in this book that any author would tell me is a very risky proposition. Uh, The whole story is told through the eyes of Henry. You start off the book with uh, 1986 senior citizen Henry, and before you know it, you're back in 1942 with the 12-year-old Henry. Uh, You go back and forth. You don't take it chronologically, but I think it works uh, very well. Explain why you chose that writing approach. Yeah, I I began the journey writing just in the 40s, but I, I wanted to give the book more of a, a redemptive ending, and I, I couldn't find that redemptive ending in the 40s for Japanese-American families who've been incarcerated, you know, as long as four or five years, coming out of those camps, having lost everything. That wasn't redemption. Uh, it was quiet relief at best. And I found by jumping to another timeline, I could look at that time from a, through a different lens. And it just so happened that in Seattle, um, a very real hotel in what's now the International District, but what used to be Nihonmachi, uh, Japantown. Um, the hotel is called the Panama Hotel. And in the 80s, the hotel changed owners, and the new owner, owner discovered all these belongings in the basement. The belongings of 37 Japanese families who were, they stored their belongings there as they were being taken away to camp. And those belongings are still there to this day. Um, I think three families came back to retrieve their belongings, but the rest is still there. And so that became a, a really, uh, it's, it became an, an, a waypoint for the story between, because the hotel really is a, a silent character with a footprint in each time period. And so I could look at those belongings and also look at the people who put them there all those decades ago. You ex- and you've already touched on this, but I want to hear more about this because you explore something that I think only a small number of Americans truly understand, and it's the enmity felt between Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. Because when you go back to the '40s and as World War II, as America entered World War II, uh, China and Japan had been at war. I think for about ten years at that point, Japan invading China, so the Chinese Americans had a low view of. Japanese Americans because of that history and what was going on. So I'd like you just to explain a little bit about that part of the story. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a conflict, you know, it, it didn't become uh, personal until Pearl Harbor. Um, and then it became personal in a very large way. But before that, you know, the China and Japan, they were not golfing buddies. There was a lot of enmity between those two countries and those two cultures. And, in many ways, that still exists to this day, um, not just in those countries, but within those communities, even in our country. Um, I worked and lived in Hawaii for a number of years, and one of my coworkers was Chinese, and she married a Japanese man, and, and her parents refused to attend the wedding. And this was in the 90s. You know, this wasn't 1942. So some people, you know, they have that emotional baggage, and they can't let it go. Um, and I... I wanted to explore that because in Seattle, you have Chinese and Japanese people living side by side, living, going to the same schools, and yet they are two completely different rich cultures, and one was at war with the other. And for two, my main characters are young children, and for them to get caught up in that, um, they become these these really interesting point of view characters because the great thing about 
young characters is, especially in historical fiction, is they don't, I can describe what's going on and they don't quite comprehend the magnitude of it. But the reader, you know, is in the future looking back and, and feels that tension. And it does, it creates a dramatic tension on the page that uh, is, you know, kind of a, what propels the novel. You spend a number of pages of that book giving the reader, I think, a very specific and personal concept of, uh, you've referred to it already, the horror and, and the pain felt by Japanese Americans who were sent to internment camps uh, beginning in 1942 during the war. Just as an aside, I when I went to college, I, I started working in the broadcasting business out of high school, and then I decided I'd better go to college, and I was a non-traditional student, but I ended up on the debate team. My debating partner was even more of a non-traditional student. He was 45 years old, a local politician to boot, but he, he every time we talked in a debate, the debate question had to do with the powers of the presidency. And he always brought up the Japanese internment camps of, of the 1940s as, as an abuse of presidential power by Franklin Roosevelt at that time. Uh, I mean, even in the 1970s, when I was in college for him, that was still a memory uh, for him. That And he was not Japanese-American in any way. Uh, it just was something that he felt was very unfair. I'd like you to ask you about the kind of research you did, how you, or maybe personal experience that you had in writing about the Japanese internment camps in, in such a personal way. Yeah, I th it, it doesn't uh, appear on the page in the novel, but the, you know, the process that led to the Japanese internment didn't begin with Pearl Harbor. It began around 1919 with the formation of anti-Japanese leagues all over the West Coast. Most of them were supported by one man who owned several newspapers and he had a financial interest in removing the Japanese, removing the competition, removing cheap labor, removing um, competition in agriculture communities. So there was this, uh, this hostility that had been there that he had been stoking for decades um, that led to this because most of the people, you know, 120,000 plus people who were sent to camp most of them were American-born. Um, they're American citizens. And so, yeah, it, it was an overreach, which is why there was, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the formal apology um, in, in the 80s uh, by Reagan and then signed by President Bush. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because my, my family's been here since the, the 1800s. And so even though I grew up in a Chinese American household, we're Americans. We, we, we don't have, uh, I don't have grandparents who died during the Japanese occupation of China and things like that. And so even though I'm Chinese, I see it from a very American perspective and I can understand the, the hysteria. We got a, a little taste of that hysteria post 9-11. I think there was one legislator in Virginia that wanted to create internment camps for Muslim Americans. Unfortunately, um, that did not happen. But fear causes people to lose reason. When people don't have reason, uh, justice can't work because there's nothing to you know, give it traction. Um, and then we fall prey to our, our worst instincts. Um, and this was fear, but it was fear on top of an unspoken plan to do something about 
the Japanese in these communities. Yes, and the one thing that I have learned studying history and talking to people who lived through that era, what what uh, so many people became upset about is just what you touched on, and I think comes through very clearly in your book that these people who are Japanese by heritage. And or Oriental, by, by, by people can see, were just as much Americans as my ancestors who were German and Irish and French and, and, and Welsh. I mean, it, they didn't consider themselves German or Welsh or French. They considered themselves Americans and these, these Japanese people. And I think it's, it's shown to the family that, that you write about. Uh, they consider themselves Americans even in the internment camp, which is just amazing. Yeah. I mean, imagine being... Um, threatened with deportation to a country that you, you we're not born into. That's <laughs> um, like that's not deportation. That's banishment. Um, that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah, the, when writing about the internment, I, and I, I tell my kids, and I often visit schools, and I and I talk about this. Lies are bad, but half truths are often more dangerous uh, because people more readily believe them. And some of the half-truths around the Japanese internment, the argument for having all of these American citizens incarcerated and losing all of their belongings, was that there were spies and saboteurs and things like that. Um, and, like, there was a... It was said that they found uh, maps of the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard in the homes of some Japanese Americans. And that sounds scary. Oh, they must be spies or something. They didn't say the other, <laughs> you know, the other part of the story is those maps were in Life magazine um, on the coffee table of, you know, 30,000 homes in the Northwest. Um, and so it's, <laughs> when you look at what happens today with, with politicians of every stripe, they, they make their hay with half truce. Um, and it, really it's kind of been the blueprint to divide people for as long as you know as we can remember unfortunately and the way you tell this story is through the eyes of people in their personal relationships and uh, of course henry of uh, chinese american heritage uh befriends keiko a japanese american at her school um, this caused very serious problems with uh, his parents, his father in particular. You also look at Henry's relationship with not only his own father, but his own son. And what I think you end up finding is that whether Henry liked to believe it or not, he became much like his father and his son became much like him. So family relationships are a very big part of, of, of this story. Talk a little bit of how you put that in, yeah. in, in the story and, and, and made that work and, and told the story in a very special way. Yeah, that's truly at the core of, of all my books because um, I think there's no drama like drama under the same roof because um, it's drama that you can't escape. Um, you know, Henry's father represents an era of Chinese Americans that, you know, they were very involved in the war with Japan. Um, they were raising funds to... Um, you know, and they had relatives fighting and dying. Um, so very much invested in that. Where, But at the same time, this generation of people sent their children to school and they want them to be, you know, become American, to have every advantage of this country, um, but also try to retain some of their cultural identity. And it's really hard. I, I, I visited a lot of ESL classes, uh, English as a Second Language, that have read this book. 
And I, when I was first invited, it was one in Seattle. So I thought most of the, of the students would be Chinese or Japanese, but they were kids from Bahrain, from Pakistan, from Kenya, from um, Chile, from all over the world. And they all had that same struggle of assimilation. How much culture do you retain? How much of your identity do you hold on to? Um, and that's a battle under one roof between generations. And despite that conflict, the part of the book that takes place in the 80s, where Henry was a young, as a young child, is now a grown man, he does have that moment where he's somewhat horrified to find out that he has, in many ways, become his father. One, one of my favorite parts of this story is when 12-year-old Henry befriends uh, an African-American jazz musician. He, he plays on the street. His name is Sheldon. He's a sax player. He eventually ends up in a band and, and does very well, but they, they become friends when he was just playing for tips on the street. Uh, you don't see an, a Chinese-American becoming a jazz fan, but Henry does, and that's part of the story. Talk about how Henry becomes a fan of jazz in this book. Yeah, I think... This this happened to my own family. My dad loved jazz. Uh, my grandfather loved jazz. And I think that's a byproduct of, in many ways, uh, you know, Seattle was a red line city. So there were, there were only certain neighborhoods where people of color could, could, could buy a home or rent. Um, and that extended to you know, Jewish Americans and in some cases, Italian Americans. So you compressed all of these different cultures into these, these neighborhoods. And so you did have, um, not just uh, living next door to one another, but going to school with, with one another. We had very uh, diverse schools for the 40s. And so, you know, my dad just grew up with that kind of music. I remember walking through Chinatown in Seattle and my grandfather pointing to clubs and saying, like, Cab Calloway played there, Ella Fitzgerald played there. And at the time, I'm, you know, I'm just a, a young kid. I was like, yeah, whatever. And then I, I did the research for this book and found out that, on South Jackson, which runs right through the middle of Chinatown, there were 38 jazz clubs. It was to write the book without jazz would have felt false. You know, I'm leaving out an important part of that neighborhood's history. And a very rare jazz record is a big part of the story. I don't want to give too much away yeah. if you want to read the book, but uh, I, I love that part of the story. It's great to hear you say that you feel that's a, as part of, of Seattle's heritage in a way. You know, when, when Henry's good friend Keiko's family heads to internment, I mean, that's where it, that, that gets emotional when you see what's going on there because Henry, you know, finds as a young man a very creative set of ways to, to visit her, sometimes taking great risks to do so. But eventually Keiko and uh, Henry fall apart through distance, time, and some family meddling, we find out later. But young romance uh, is central to this story. I really love that part of the story. Talk about why that is so much a part of the story you're trying to tell here. I, I like coming-of-age stories, I think. And for some people, coming-of-age is eight. For some people, coming-of-age is 48. You know, we, we mature at different, at different rates. Um, and reinvent ourselves along the way. Um, but there's something very sweet of uh, the coming of age love story. Um, if, if you make the kids much older than 15 or so, it, it starts to get more hormonal. <laughs> it gets a little, a little more complicated and it loses its, its innocence. And I, I like the innocence part. I, I do like, I, with that book, 
I tried to echo the decorum of movies in the 40s where, um, you know, love was all consuming, not all consummating. And there is a difference. Um, and that tension, that aching, that longing from, you know, films like Casablanca, um, it's such an intense love story. You don't, you don't need it to be um, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie in a, you know, devoid of clothing in a, in a very cinematic sex scene. It's just, just, it's just this, this, you know, noble endeavor of love. Um, and to have young characters discovering that. I, I remember that from when I was a kid at that age, when I was like 12 and, you know, my world is comic books and football and Legos. And then I had a crush on a girl and like the next week, suddenly I'm just like, Oh, love sucks. This is hard. <laughs> like suddenly I discovered this whole adult world of emotion and it can be crushing at times. Um, and everyone has those moments at some point in their lives. And so it's universally relatable. Um, it's something that I wanted to write about. Unfortunately, a lot of people enjoyed reading about it. Well, I can see why audiences were drawn to this story, kept it on the New York Times bestseller list for a very long time. I wanted to highlight this because that's a book I had a chance to read. You've written several books. Since then, you have a new one out. Talk about the books you uh, you have out, and uh, particularly the one you uh, are, are <laughs> talking about right now. Yeah, my first three books um, were all historical fiction set in and around Seattle, which is where I'm from. The books are almost uh, you know, my love letters to old Seattle. They go back a little a little bit in time. So Hotel on the Corner of Bitter Suites in the 40s. My second book is Depression Era. And then the book before that takes place in the early 1900s. Uh, the new book that I have out, which just came out in August, uh, is called The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. It's, I call it my big box of crayons because it's... Uh, it's an evolution for me. So it's historical. It's also speculative, has magical realism, um, takes place all over the world, as well as Seattle. Um, but the, the title character, Afong Moy, was the first Chinese woman to come to America. She came to this country in 1834. And it's a, I gave her fictional descendants all the way into the future. That's a really long description. So what I should say, the short description, which um, I actually posted this on Twitter like three days ago, I just described it as it's about inherited trauma and also a love story. And that description seemed to work because 17,000 people pressed like. (laughs) (laughs) So some people relate to trauma and love stories and their interconnectivity. So something about today that uh, the number of likes is, is, is a barometer of where you are (laughs) as an author. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We, we live in this weird attention economy where everyone, you know, we're, we're getting these little micro endorphin hits and they want to be TikTok influencers and all that stuff. And the character of Afong Moy was super famous, um, but she had zero aut- autonomy over her own life. Um, and that was that made her a very interesting character to write about. Well, and, and your, that put, your latest book is, is definitely getting quite a buzz, and I congratulate you on that. Uh, I love, I certainly did uh, specifically love Hotel on the Corner, Bitter and Sweet, but your latest book is is, is definitely uh, the talk of the town now and, and many towns around America, and it's good to see that. I mean, you, you have a style of writing that I, I just enjoy very much, and I hope you continue this. And my final question for you is if there's a young writer, aspiring writer, watching and listening right now uh, it's especially the publishing industry has changed so much uh, what what's your advice for the young writer these days 
this is this is advice someone gave to me, and I and I did it, and it was uh, it was cheaper than an MFA, which I do not have. Uh, I don't have a master's in creative writing or anything like that. Um, a very successful author said, "Go to a garage sale, buy three of the worst out of print books you could find, and force yourself to read them as an author. Pick them apart." find fault with everything. And then when you sit down to your own work, you'll catch yourself if you happen to make those same kind of mistakes. Um, and it was true. It, it really worked for me. It cost about 50 cents um, and, you know, several late nights of reading terrible books. But I, I do think you can learn from reading bad work as well as uh, reading great work. In fact, the other side of that coin is when someone's trying to figure out how to write, they're trying to write their first novel or short story or memoir, I always encourage people to stop reading their favorite authors um, because it's like trying to lose weight and only reading Vogue magazine. You're going to you're gonna die a death of comparison, and it's very frustrating. And, um, and maybe the last piece of, I'm giving you tons of advice, so, but um, the last bit is allow yourself to fail. Give yourself permission to fail. No one sits down at a piano and plays Rachmaninoff right out of the gate. Um, no one sits down at the keyboard and writes, you know, the great American novel um, right out of the gate. You're going to have some bad notes. And, and understand, that's just part of the process. It's part of the craft. It's part of learning. And if you stop when you have, you know, one bit of failure, um, stopping is the failure. Uh, the mistake you have, might have made on the page is not the failure. I've heard many authors say that the, the, the advice they give aspiring writers is to read. I think you're the first person that said, write, <laughs> make sure you read bad fiction. <laughs> yes. It's, it, it's just very useful, I think. It's a very practical. Um, and also, you know, if you want to have a sustained career, it's helpful to remember you're a storyteller, not a writer. No one really wants 600 pages of writing. They want 600 pages of story. And we ought to lose sight of that. I think it was Mark Twain that once uh, wrote that every uh, writer, at least in his case, when he would write anything, he rewrote every paragraph three or four or five times. Do you go through something like that? Yeah, maybe not three or four times, but uh, I do. <laughs> that's why you know my wife can be like, You're, you've been working on that for six hours. What did you get? I'm like, oh, I wrote a page. Um and in some days, it's it's the opposite of that. I've, I've written twenty pages, um, so it's it varies. But there is a craft to it. But the craft for me, I think, um, I I just don't think it should obfuscate the story. I think I think you need a story first. You never know when someone's going to watch or listen to a podcast, but Jamie Ford is coming to Fishers. He'll be at the Hamilton East Public Library Saturday, October 1st, 1 p.m., 4 p.m. Highly recommended that you register so you make sure you can uh, you can you can get in and see him. Uh, all I can say is, Jamie Ford, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to seeing everyone in a few days. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase. 
podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Music